Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by professor of psychology, queer activist, leading researcher on microaggressions and author, Dr. Kevin Leo Yabut Nadal. Professor Nadal received his doctorate in counseling from Columbia University and is one of the leading researchers in understanding the impact of microaggressions or subtle forms of discrimination on the mental and physical health of people of color, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, and other marginalized groups. He has published over a hundred works on multicultural issues in the fields of psychology and education, and is the author of several books, including the recently re-released new and improved edition of his critical text, Filipino American Psychology, a handbook of theory, research, and clinical practice, as well as queering law and order, published in 2020. Professor Nadal, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to speak with you about these issues. Thank you. So today I'm hoping to discuss a few issues um, with you uh, related to your expertise. But firstly, uh, I'd like to discuss whiteness in relation to LGBTQ plus identities. Mm. So my first question is, how does whiteness show up when it comes to these groups specifically? What a great first question. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, my my uh, first reaction is that, you know, with any identity, with any community, whiteness is always present. And within each uh, specific subgroup or um, different historically marginalized groups, um, whiteness affects those groups very uh, specifically with different nuances. Um, when it comes to LGBTQ folks, um, I think one of the things that we first have to think about is who, who does that mean? Um, and that means people who uh, identify with um, minoritized sexual orientation or gender identity groups, meaning that they do not identify as heterosexual or as cisgender. Um, so uh, when we think about white people and whiteness, um, one of the first things that pops up is that when people um, think about LGBTQ people, um, they tend to, uh, to think about white standards of what it means to be LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we think about like, you know, mainstream media presentations, of queerness um, or transness, um, it's often through the lens of white people. Um, if you think about any of the movies that came out, you know, prior to even just last couple of years, um, if they were, uh, you know, viewed as LGBTQ movies, um, they always had white characters um, and usually white cisgender um, male characters um, as the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that does a disservice to the LGBTQ community or community. Um, because, uh, you know, we have folks who think that this is how they're supposed to be. And so while whiteness is something that infiltrates, you know, our general society within LGBTQ community, it sets standards for things like coming out processes or uh, standards of beauty um, or, you know, ways that we're supposed to um, communicate with each other, um, things that are of interest, um, you know, to different parts of the community. I mean, I think just like, 
like from a systemic issue when we're thinking about um, queer and trans issues in uh, the United States and the UK and in other um, you know Western countries. Uh, a lot of the issues that are viewed as LGBTQ issues are issues that affect mostly white LGBTQ people, right? So the push for same-sex marriage, for example, um, was viewed as like the top major priority um, in the U.S. at least, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and why was that? Because white LGBTQ, I should say, white gay men and lesbian women, um, you know, they wanted to get married and they were unable to get married. And so that was what their biggest issue was. Um, versus um, when we look at other parts of the LGBTQ community or communities, uh, we see that poverty is still a huge issue for uh, trans and queer people of color. We see um, that violence is a huge issue for trans women of color and especially black trans women. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, whiteness definitely, you know, sets the tone for, you know, what's deemed important um, in queer and trans communities. And, and it's something that, you know, oftentimes uh, white LGBTQ folks get really defensive about um, because we're just pointing out that this is a reality and it's not, you know, like a reality based on, you know, paranoia or misconception. It actually is like something that's just factual. And um, a lot of times, you know, in saying such things, uh, mm -hmm. we get viewed as being divisive um, or trying to, you know, break down the, the LGBTQ community when in reality, we're just fighting for all of our voices to be heard and included. Mm. And it's so interesting you mentioned that example because just before we spoke, I was reading an article by uh, the best-selling author George M. Johnson, um, mm -hmm. and he says in that article that while black people, like while black queer people, are still fighting for survival, white queer people were fighting for marriage equality, which mm -hmm. sounds very much like the the point you were making. But mm -hmm. he he goes on in that piece to discuss the way in which. Uh, the Stonewall riots should be considered an important part of Black history, but that right. these have been largely ignored or downplayed, uh, as have key right. figures from the movement. So has the movement for LGBTQ plus rights been whitewashed? Yeah, absolutely. As you were talking about Stonewall, I mean, it's not even that it should be included as Black history, but that it was Black history. Mm. And in fact, while there were white people there, I don't want to discount that presence of white people that were at Stonewall. And there have been lots of Stonewall veterans, as they're called, um, who've shared their personal experiences. Um, it really was um, the Black and Brown, Black and Latino, um, Latinx, uh, trans drag queens, street kids, um, homeless youth. Um, that were at the forefront of that uh, of the Stonewall uprising, um, and uh, you know, like that's something that has completely been whitewashed. Um, you know, as exemplified by the Stonewall movie that came out not too long ago, in which they made the protagonist a white gay cisgender male when there is no documentation as a white cisgender male starting um, the movement. Versus, there is documentation of people like Marsha P. Johnson being very vocal during uh, the uprising, um, or people like Stormy, uh, uh, what's her last name, Lover Ray, um, who uh, was a Black uh, lesbian, um, genderqueer, who uh, was part of that movement as well. Um, and so, you know, it's something that I is is really um, 
you know, violent in some ways, right? It's like an active erasing of history. And if we're all supposed to be, you know, one LGBTQ community, um, then why are people so actively trying to erase uh, the voices of, of black and brown um, people, but especially black and brown trans people and, and queer people, uh, gender queer people? Um, you know, I, I want to just emphasize that I keep on interchanging LGBTQ community and LGBT communities for that very reason, because mm. um, many of us don't believe there is a LGBT community. And in fact, you know, that there are several LGBTQ communities that all work, um, you know, as best as we can in solidarity for our general rights as an umbrella group. Um, but, you know, it's really a misnomer to say that there is one solid LGBTQ community. Mm. And, and on that question of sort of the way that whiteness shows up within these communities or community, um, is it the same, does it look the same as it does within wider society or does it have a particular permutation within right. these groups? Yeah, I mean, it's like most things, it's, it's, it's very similar and it has the very, um, you know, common themes, uh, but there are specific nuances. Um, and so, for example, uh, you know, whiteness infiltrates our, our standards of beauty across all societies, right? Um, any, any society that's been colonized in any way that's been exposed to Western media um, has uh, been taught that there is this standard of beauty that centers whiteness. Um, and so that's something that we see, you know, across the US, across the UK, that's something we see, um, you know, across heterosexuals and LGBTQ folks. Um, but with, with LGBTQ folks, um, the ways that that manifests might look differently. So while there are definitely standards of beauty um, for men and women in general. Um, for queer men, for example, um, those standards of beauty might be much more um, prevalent or uh, even like uh, overtly prominent. Um, the ways that uh, gay, queer, bi men are taught their bodies are supposed to look um, and how it's supposed to match uh, what is uh, presented to us um, and what is presented to us are, you know, typically uh, white uh, bodies that are slim but muscular um, and uh, you know that's something that we see in our media that's something we see in our um, you know just uh, the ways that you know what's what's viewed as, as sexy that's that's also viewed on um, you know like even like on dating apps uh, you know people who uh, who favor white people and whiteness um, and then write on their profiles things like no no blacks no asians and then they also write no fats no femmes um mm. which is all very much related to whiteness um and so uh you know it's 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 so unique um and then when we think about trans people um very similarly um trans standards of beauty it's not just that there are standards of beauty in terms of um you know what we learn from general society but for trans people and for trans women um now they have to uh, abide or adhere to general american standards of beauty which centers again whiteness um in order to pass um and if they uh don't pass uh and by passing I mean that people are uh, not able to to tell if they're trans or transgender, um, where they um, are uh, perceived as you know being cisgender women. Um, that that that's actually a safety issue. Um, that if they are mm -hmm. able to pass, then they're you know less likely to be targeted or, or victimized. Um, but if they do pass, um, you know, then what happens is that they people might not recognize that they're trans, but they might also get themselves into 
into uh, other types of violent situations because if they have a lover who um, who learns that they're trans or is unable to uh, to deal with the fact that they are attracted to trans women, um, then um, you know they could be targeted for violence too. Uh, so again, proximity to whiteness, it, it, almost as it has historically been been the norm, it involves safety and, and moving away from it involves risks mm-hmm. and, and risks of violence in this case. Yeah. Um, it, I was wondering while I was listening to, to you speak, how do you conceptualize the relationship between between whiteness and heteronormativity, you know, aka mm-hmm. straightness? Uh, is there a right. relationship? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about the ways that we presume um, that people who are queer should be um, more like heterosexuals, but specifically like more like hetero, like white heterosexuals, right? So, I mean, going back to this marriage example, because the marriage example yeah. is always a good way to just sort of like, you know, um, compare and see how themes emerge. Um, but for the marriage example, I, the whole push for marriage um, was through the eyes of, of white uh gay men mostly, but also lesbian women. Um, And it really was, you know, this push for like, we want to be viewed as normal and we want to be viewed as, you know, not just different from any of you that we're still, we're like the family next door. Um, And so really Mm. in that way, it's, it's not just pushing for, you know, um, for like legal rights, but it's pushing for people to accept us or for people to view us as, um, you know, being just like you, just a little different. Um, Um, which is very like problematic in a lot of ways, because what's wrong with being gay or queer or trans or bi? Like what's wrong with being polygamous or not um, being in a long-term relationship or not raising kids? Um, Like there's nothing wrong with that. Everyone has their own life choices. And in fact, for heterosexual people, like that's something um, that shouldn't, there's nothing wrong with not having kids either if you're a heterosexual person. But um, that is just something that is so ingrained and so, um, much viewed as a standard that people should abide by. Um, and so when it comes to, to whiteness, um, for, for the, the people who are pushing that agenda, it really was to be more like, um, you know, these, uh, normative heterosexual couples, um, which, you know, looks, I, very, um, differently than let's say like um, lots of couples of color don't need to get married, right? Mm -hmm. Heterosexual or LGBTQ. Um, Lots of people have um, relationships uh, that are, you know, long-term monogamous, have kids, but don't necessarily get married. Um, But because there's a standard uh, of marriage and kids and the, the, you know, two, 2.5 2.5 kids or the garage and the white picket fence um, that that then became something for LGBTQ people to, to fight for. I mean, even thinking about um, marriage uh, for, through the lens of, of LGBTQ people of color, a lot of LGBTQ people of color um, weren't fighting to necessarily be viewed as uh, normalized. Well, some were, um, but but a lot of folks were fighting for marriage um, simply because it was an economic issue that it was, mm. uh, they wanted to have some of their rights protected. Um, 
Um, they wanted to be able to, you know, visit their partner in the hospital if they got sick. They wanted to be able to, you know, have that tax write-off um, that wasn't afforded to them because it was um, only something that that heterosexual couples had because they could get married. Um, and so, um, and even even still, there were also like um, issues related to immigration um, that were at the forefront for uh, queer people of color, mm. um, you know, wanting to get married so that that possibly could change federal law that their marriages would be um, viewed as, you know, one reason why somebody could stay into the in the country, um, in the United States, at least. And so, um, so, you know, it's like, we're all fighting for similar things, but there are, you know, different motivations behind them, different outcomes behind them. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's something that again, like, uh, white people, white LGBTQ folks, um, may not necessarily even, um, think about the nuances, but something that LGBTQ people of color, you know, are oftentimes very keenly aware of. Mm, can't escape, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, so that brings us to one of the issues I did want to talk about, which was the the, the criminal justice system or, or the, yep. the so-called justice system that, you know, the current mm-hmm. civil rights movement for black lives catalyzed by George Floyd's murder by Uh, the police on May 25th has brought to light the ways in which white supremacy harms society's most marginalized groups. And you've written a book, Queering Law and Order, looking at how lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people have been pathologized, victimized, and criminalized throughout American history. And so I was wondering if you could explain to us how, or rather, what does whiteness look like within the justice system for people of color who are also LGBTQ plus? What are some of the additional ways in which whiteness impacts their experience of it? Right. I mean, I think one of the things that we have to start off with is that the criminal justice system has undoubtedly uh, disproportionate overrepresentation of black and brown people um, that are incarcerated or who come in contact with the police. And that's something um, that is has been, you know, a part of our history. Um, in fact, you know, many uh, historians will document that or uh, will will verify um, that many police departments were founded as a way of uh, still trying to um, to keep slaves or former slaves um, you know in check uh, even though slavery was abolished um, and so I so there's a history of, of racism and white supremacy within uh, law enforcement specifically but within the justice system um, and we also have to understand that you know the ways that laws were written um, never had the intention of being inclusive or even um, equitable towards people of historically marginalized groups, right? And I, I, you know, I think people don't mm. realize that sometimes when we it's talk a really about important law. Point. Yeah, when we talk about law in general, like people are like, we have to change this law. Um, and, and we do have to change this law. But we also have to consider throwing out the law altogether, because it was never meant to include uh, people that are now here in this country. If we think about, you know, the ways that the United States was formed um, here on, on stolen land, uh, that a bunch of people uh, from Europe came and, you know, killed Native Americans or led to their genocide, by bringing over diseases and so forth, um, that, uh, 
that they had intention, uh, the intention of creating a country for other Western European people and specifically, you know, English, British people, um, that that was who their intention was for at least for the federal government, right? And then when state governments, um, you know, started to form their own laws, majority of the people were still people of, of British descent. And so that's who was in mind. And so when we think about even immigration laws, uh, that immigration um, wasn't even a thing because the only people that were coming over to, uh, to the country um, in the late 1700s and uh, the early 1800s um, were people from Europe. And so there didn't need to be, mm. you know, any of these major restrictive federal laws, at least not involving race or country of origin. Um, they started to create laws that had to do with, um, you know, things like mental illness uh, or uh, people who were physically ill or, or you know, couldn't con contribute to U.S. society. And so there's some ableism um, in there for sure. Uh, but there wasn't anything based on race. And it wasn't until Chinese people started to come in the 1800s on the West Coast uh, that federal government started to say, hey, we need to do something about this. We need to stop mm. them. And so the, uh, the Page Act of 1875, followed by uh, the Asian Exclusion Act or the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 were the first laws that were created on a federal level to try to prevent um, Asian people, but in this case, you know, just people of color, non-white people um, from coming into this country. You mm. know, another thing that people don't even realize is that, you know, this, all of the laws that were created in this country were built for men, that women actually weren't even considered citizens um, unless they were married to people who were, to men who were considered citizens, but they, they weren't considered citizens themselves. Um, and mm. we know that women were um, allowed the, the right to vote in, in uh, 1920. Um, but we also have to recognize that that was white women who were allowed to vote in 1920. Um, and that women of color, uh, depending on the group, weren't able to vote until 1965 uh, with the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so, you know, even that in itself is is dem demonstrative of this notion that um, that the law wasn't created for women. And so when you have women um, advocating for things like voting rights to owning property, um, to even like sexual assault and trying to report sexual assault, the laws were originally not written for them. Um, and so this is why uh, there had been so much, um, you know, uh, so much that was allowed for sexual assault and violence um, uh, towards women. Um, mm. And uh, and then now going back to your original question, now going to race, um, there, there was never a sense of, you know, whether these laws were um, supposed to be inclusive of people of color or people that were once enslaved in this country or whose lands were stolen from this country um, or who then immigrated to this country um, primarily because the United States uh, came to their countries first and told them about how great our country was. Um, and, uh, and and so those laws just weren't made to protect uh, you know any of these groups. Um, and so when we even start to see this uh, overrepresentation of black and brown people um, in the system, um, you know, that's not an accident. That's exactly what was meant to happen um, mm. in creating a lot of these laws. Uh, and our criminal justice system is so broken um, that uh, that it's so bl black and white, you know, pun intended, like mm. you did something wrong or you didn't do something wrong. Um, and you're going to go to prison because of this thing that you did, not recognizing why you did the thing that you did, or um, not recognizing the s social, psychological, um, or even just uh, the trauma 
that you may be experiencing um, or have experienced as a result of, of dealing with things like racism or classism um, here in the U.S. Uh, and so, you know, with, um, with, with whiteness, and I think in general, it, it's the erasure that these are even problems. Um, it's the erasure of this idea uh, that our country isn't really equitable or equal um, or that people don't have um, all the opportunities um, that they think we have. Um, or it's the, 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 the notion that we want to push colorblindness, that race doesn't matter, um, when in reality, race always matters. Um, and, you know, we see this through just numbers. We see that Black people are more likely to uh, be convicted of, of the same crimes that white people um, are not convicted of. We know that Black people are more likely to uh, serve longer and um, more severe uh, punishments for the same crimes that white people commit. We know that white people are more likely to get on parole faster and, uh, you know, uh, than Black people are. Um, and that's the numbers are, you know, the, the, the laws are, are innumerable. There, there are so many different or the stats are innumerable. There's so many yeah. different um, things that exist. And so back to your original question about LGBTQ folks, like how does that affect you? If, if you're a member of, of, uh, of multiple marginalized groups, so if you're an LGBTQ person of color, if you're an LGBTQ uh, immigrant and an immigrant of color, um, you're, you're more likely to, you know, be uh, disproportionately affected. I mean, one thing that people don't know is uh, that there are a significant amount of incarcerated LGBTQ LGBTQ folks. In fact, some studies have found um, that within the justice system, in uh, women, federal and state prisons, uh, that half of the women in women's prisons identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or queer. Um, that's half of our yeah, prison women's huge. populations. Um, and, you know, if, if they say that, you know, uh, maybe one out of every five people is LGBTQ, whatever the, the numbers are these days, um, and half of, of people in prison are LGBTQ, that is, or, or at least women's prisons are, are LGBTQ, that is a, you know, huge disproportionate number. Um, and so why is it that they're in prison? What are the circumstances yeah. that have gotten them there? Um, and then again, how does uh, race um, and class affect that, right? So if they're, if the prison industrial complex is already uh, overfilled, overwhelmed with, um, with Black, uh, especially, but also Latinx, um, uh, prisoners, um, then how many more of them um, are affected when they're also uh, identified as, as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans? Mm, well, thank you so much for that very, very thorough response. I think it really gave, um, you know, the, as you say, sort of the layers, the layers of complexities involved, the, the intersections of um, different, um, I suppose, barriers or, or um, uh, forms of, of discrimination that people are likely to, to face within it. Um, did you get any sense yourself from your research of why there was such a high representation of, in this case, you mentioned lesbian women in women's prisons. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a few things about class and, and race intersecting, but um, it seems very high. 
Yeah, it is very high. And, you know, it really is, there really is no like clear answer as to why that is. You know, I don't think that lesbians are prone to crime. Um, I don't think that there, you know, there's not like a certain type of crime that is committed that you say, oh, that these are mostly lesbian women. But what we do know is that when people um, are, uh, or when people have multiple marginalized identities, um, that means they oftentimes experience things like isolation, um, like uh, not having, you know, the familial support that they may need, not having support from, um, you know, teachers or religious figures or any number of folks. Um, and so, um, you know, for me, whenever I look at just the high proportion of, of LGBTQ folks in the criminal justice system, I also recognize that there's a high proportion of LGBTQ youth um, who are homeless or who are runaways. Um, and that's because they didn't have the support of their families or their parents. Um, in New York City alone, it's estimated that anywhere between 40 to 50% of the youth who are homeless on the streets are LGBTQ. So a similar number that if, if you know, one out of every four or one out of every five people in the U.S. is LGBTQ identified, um, why is it that half of them or close to half of them um, are homeless? Um, and so could that be that because they're unsupported by their families, they're kicked out of their homes or they run away because their homes are just unsafe, um, that uh, that that sets them up to then, you know, be susceptible to the criminal justice system. When you're homeless um, and you're trying to survive, uh, you might turn to certain behaviors that are deemed criminal um, based on American standards, uh, but may not necessarily be criminal um, because those standards are very, you know, westernized, white, Christian, et cetera. I mean, just as mm. an example, when we think about sex work, right? Yeah. Like why is sex work a consensual act in which somebody is uh, receiving payment for engaging in a skill set um, that is consensual. Uh, why is that viewed as as a, a legal or as a crime? Um, and that is because uh, the government says so, and because the government, um, which was allegedly supposed to be free of religious persecution, is imposing Puritan uh, values um, onto uh, the ways that laws were written. Um, and so, you know, it's really interesting. Um, just you know, thinking about just that notion is that yeah. you know the the earlier British folks that left the uh, the left England to come to the United States, like did so to avoid uh, religious persecution. And then they go ahead and just start persecuting people here based on those same religious values. Mm, interesting. Um, well, I would, could keep going, but I know we're going to be short on time. And I really want to talk to you about microaggressions, because I know that you sure. are one of the leading researchers in understanding the impacts of microaggressions. So I guess, first of all, what is a microaggression and how did you become interested in this field? Sure. So microaggressions are uh, defined as uh, the more subtle forms of bias that may manifest through uh, behaviors or verbal uh, verbal statements. And so uh, there are the things that people say or do oftentimes um, unintentional or out of the purview, purview of their, uh, their awareness um, that may still communicate bias, even if you, you know, didn't mean for that bias to come out. So just as, as an example, when it comes to race, 
um, people might see an Asian person um, and tell them like, oh, wow, you speak really good English, to which the Asian person um, might say, well, of course, I was born and raised in this country. Um, but mm. the presumption is that they weren't born in this country. And so therefore, people are surprised if they speak English. Um, a microaggression based on, on gender could be uh, somebody being surprised that a woman could do something like, oh, wow, I, I didn't realize you could carry that box by yourself. Or, oh, wow, mm. I didn't realize you could um, you could build something, right? Yeah. Um, so because of gender role expectations that people um, might, you know, be surprised or, um, you know, even pay a compliment to somebody that really isn't a compliment because it means that you presume they couldn't have done it. Mm. Um, and so when it comes to microaggressions, they affect people of historically marginalized groups. Um, they're part of people's everyday lives. And what research has found is that uh, the ways or the more that people experience microaggressions, um, the more likely they are to also report uh, issues such as depression, anxiety, trauma symptoms, uh, sleep disorders or sleeping problems, uh, eating disorders, alcohol use, um, and low self-esteem. So among other things. And so mm. microaggressions, while they seem harmless or innocuous, um, actually can have uh, such a negative impact on people's lives. So that's really interesting because I think the term microaggression, sometimes people can think, oh, micro, you know, not not really sure. a big deal. But it sounds like actually they can have very significant yep. impacts on people's lives. And, and, you know, you mentioned depression and mental health. And I know a lot mm -hmm. of companies today are, you know, working to try and train employees to no longer engage in microaggressions. Can you teach people through diversity yeah. training how not to engage in microaggressions? Yeah, I mean, you could teach people it's whether or not they want to actually listen to those things, right? Mm. Um, but I think it really comes from within. I think it's great that 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 companies and you know other systems are doing whatever they can to try to address the root problem. Um, and you know, they think those things are very important and need to continue to happen. And I also think people need uh, to do that own work. Uh, that they need to reflect on their own biases. They need to reflect on uh, the things that they believe um, are good or bad or normal or abnormal um, and really reflect on how those those biases, those perspectives, those prejudices uh, may then influence the ways they interact with people. You know, I think for, for some folks, it's even just to like question um, or even challenge yourself to think about like, who, who are the people that I'm closest to? And why is that? Um, if you're a white person, you have only white friends. Why is it that you only have white friends? Um, if you are a, a white person and heterosexual person, and uh, you have very few queer friends, why is that? Um, part of it could be exposure. You haven't been um, exposed to enough queer trans people or, or people of color. Um, but it could also be that people of color are picking up on the fact that perhaps you are biased or that you uh, don't know how to talk to them or that you commit microaggressions towards them. Um, and, and that might prevent your ability to form relationships. Or could your biases uh, themselves um, inform your inability to form relationships? If you have biases about Black people, um, then maybe you might on some level avoid talking to Black people and then therefore don't uh, have uh, form solid, meaningful relationships uh, with them. I'm not telling people just to go out and go find a black friend or a friend of color yeah. or a gay friend or of queer course. friend. But I think it's important for people to reflect as to why that might not already be. Um, and, and again, for people to do that work, that self-exploration, it really takes a, a commitment, a lifetime, lifetime commitment for folks to, uh, to want to 
to, to believe and practice social justice principles. Um, but, uh, you know, it's even if you took as many trainings as possible, if you fight that, if you resist that, then, um, then you're not going to do that. So what do you, um, and I don't know if you do this at all, in fact, but do you have uh, advice uh, in terms of how people should respond if they are called out on microaggressions? And I ask because we've had, you know, Dr. Robin D'Angelo on uh, the show and she's talked about kind of some of the reactions, you know, white fragility when people are called out and um, and I know that in the past, when uh, when I've spoken to uh, white employees at companies who've said, you know, I'm I'm now scared to say anything, and I don't know what, you know, I'm 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 constantly walking on eggshells, and so I'm just wondering what's people. All of us have blind spots, right? We none of us know everything about every community. How do we? So does that mean we're necessarily going to invo- engage in microaggressions? And if so, how should you respond if you do? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that's important is to acknowledge that everybody is capable of committing microaggressions. And that's just the fact, you know, me as somebody who studies microaggressions can commit microaggressions because I've been socialized um, in a world that has taught me uh, to value certain things or to not value certain things or to privilege certain things or to not privilege certain things. Um, And so um, when uh, just accepting that, like, I think that helps to, to, uh, to, to relieve some of that burden, because I think people are walking on eggshells because they're so afraid of being viewed as bad people. Mm. Um, And for me, committing a microaggression doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you human. Um, If you're somebody who refuses to change some of those behaviors or to acknowledge some of those behaviors, um, then yeah, maybe now you're, that's a bad thing to do um, because you're not trying to, you know, push for humanity and care and empathy. Um, But if you just, by virtue of committing a microaggression, you know, you're just the product of the society that you were raised in. Um, And so, you know, for me, um, it's, it's, if you commit a microaggression and somebody calls you out on it, um, to acknowledge that you hurt them, you know, you may not have intended it, um, and you might get defensive. In fact, you probably will. Um, but to, to apologize for hurting their feelings or for doing something that had a negative impact on them, you know, an analogy that I share, um, often is that if, you know, I'm walking into a building and there's a, a door, um, that I push through and, um, without seeing somebody behind me, um, I don't hold the door for them because I, I just didn't see them and the door hits them in the face. Um, I'm still going to say sorry, you know, because even right. if I didn't intend uh, to hurt them, um, I saw that that was a mistake and that it did hurt them, you know, um, and usually it's not a big deal. They they see the the look of, of um, you know, like shock or, or regret or whatever it is. And, um, you know, they're able to accept that apology and no big deal. We move on. Um, but we can apply that general principle to microaggressions that you may not have intended to do something, but you did hurt somebody. And so to apologize, um, in, in, for that, uh, behavior. Um, and I think if, you know, if you're a person of a historically marginalized group or even a witness, um, to a microaggression and you call somebody out on it, um, you know, I think there's definitely, uh, there are definitely more effective ways of doing that. Um, and then at the same time, you don't have to be effective if you don't want to, because you were just targeted for a microaggression. Um, mm. And so, you know, you might want to be effective if the situation is such that you're like, I want to, you know, this person to learn, I don't want this person to be defensive, you know, we're working together, um, you know, I want to create a, a, a an environment where we could talk about these things. Um, and if that's the case, then you might do something like um, acknowledging how you felt and using I statement and 
on addressing the behavior. So mm -hmm. instead of saying like, you're racist, which most people don't like, um, you could say something like, um, you know, when you said that thing earlier, it made me feel really bad about myself because it was really, um, you know, racially charged and made me feel um, like you were saying I was incompetent because of my race. Mm -hmm. um, and so addressing the behavior uh, is something that the person will still get a, a defensive about likely, um, but you're not calling them a bad person. You're not calling them a racist. You're not, um, you know, demoralizing them as a human being, but rather pointing out a behavior um, that they did that had a negative impact on you. Yeah. And, and then hopefully recognizing that they've had the the love and the patience to want to engage with you, yep. you know, at the level of, of explaining something, which, you know, as you say, can be very emotionally taxing. I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you, you look at mental health. I mean, what, how are microaggressions affecting the mental health of people who are having to deal with them day in, day out at work, in the store, yeah. in the street? Yeah, I mean, just if we can just imagine what it's like to be a person of a historically marginalized group uh, who has to constantly think about these things as they navigate just their everyday life, um, then you could start to just even um, imagine or consider just the the extra psychological work uh, that that takes, you know, and, and, you know, I'll just use this as an example. Right now, um, this week uh, in uh, in the U.S. at least, uh, we're experiencing, uh, you know, an, an uptake of anti-Asian hate crimes. The Asian people are uh, being targeted for no other reason other than the race. Um, and so many Asian Americans are walking around with the fear of being attacked. Uh, we see similar things happening with uh, Black trans women who have continually experienced violence here in the United States, um, that they may walk around fearing being attacked. Uh, Black men in this country uh, have been targeted by police officers, uh, killed, unarmed for not doing anything wrong, having knees put to their back um, and their necks, which kill them eventually. Uh, so walking around, seeing a police officer, perhaps tensing up, tensing up because there's a fear that they might be uh, arrested or even killed. Um, and so just that stress in navigating a, a person's day um, can just feel so overwhelming. You know, um, yeah. it's not that I think people think about this every single moment in their life, but even if they think about it a few times a day, that's extra stress than let's say the white person who can just walk to work and think about that work project they have to do that might be stressful. But now the Asian person or the black trans person has to walk down the street um, thinking about that work project while also being hypervigilant that no one's going to go out, come out of nowhere and attack them. Yeah. Um, and so, so that extra stress uh, is something that uh, people, historically marginalized groups, and especially people with, uh, with many intersectionalities and multiple marginalized identities, um, that this is what they have to experience. And again, like it, it's, it's not like that they're unable to do it. It's just that it's it's normal. This is life. Uh, they can cope with mm. these things. Um, it's stressful, um, but this is what life is. And I think one thing that I would just hope white people could empathize with is just how, how horrible that is, that this is what some of us have to deal with uh, in our everyday lives. And what a privilege it is uh, that you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. You know, I'm not negating that white people have problems too. Everybody has problems. Like white people, you know, 
similarly to me have to worry about whether their kids are going to be safe or have to worry about paying rent or have to worry about, um, you know, whether they're going to get that promotion at work. Um, all things that people of all races experience. But now imagine thinking about all those things and then having the extra layer. So not just protecting your kids from, you know, accidents or injuries or from predators, um, but now the racialized component to it. So thinking about all of those things, plus worrying about whether police are going to kill your children or worried about uh, whether or not uh, a a white uh, supremacist is going to kill your children. Um, And then thinking about, you know, promotions at work, like not just that you're not getting this promotion, promotion at work, but that the trauma of knowing that uh, historically someone of your group has never gotten that job before, or that there are so few of you um, in in that field to to begin with. So the extra pressure of what it feels like to be uh, the the only person of color or the only woman or the only woman of color, like there's just additional stressors that people of historically marginalized groups have to deal with uh, that oftentimes uh, just white people don't recognize. Mm. And I suppose part, partly recognizing them hopefully creates a working, at least if we're going to talk about a working environment, one in which maybe more facilities are available or there are more support groups or, I mean, how do you, uh, I mean, do you have a sense of how anyone listening to this who's thinking, oh, you know, I, I, I recognize these problems in my workplace. Is this something where, you know, white people should be pushing for more mental health support groups in there? Sure. Yeah. Or, or I yeah, mean, what do you advise? <laughs> you know, I think the, the first, I think every situation is going to be different and everyone has a different place in their workplace and their families and their school groups, their church groups, their whatever groups um, that depending on what your role is, you may or may not have, um, you know, as much, you uh, access or opportunity to make huge changes, right? So I acknowledge that. Um, And I also think that depending on what your position is, your positionality, your place, and then the amount of power and social capital you have in certain places, you can make some changes um, in those environments. Um, I think the first thing that people need to do is just name the problem. Whiteness Mm. is such that we create colorblind situations where people do not want to name the problem. Um, And in doing so, uh, there's even a culture that's created that if somebody does name the problem, that they're problematic or Mm. that they are, you know, um, outspoken or vigilantes or any number of things, the angry black person, the angry lesbian. Um, And I... And and that's a big part of the the issue is that the culture is such that people don't want to address these issues. So I think, you know, sometimes just uh, addressing, naming the problem is the first step, uh, you know, with even like 12 step programs, it's just that the first step to addressing that there is an issue. So before we can get to steps six, seven, eight, nine, 10, um, we have to just address step one, that there is a problem. And so for people, you know, listening, like thinking about your workplace, like, can you even just name like who who's in charge of your workplace? What does the leadership look like? Who gets paid more and who gets paid less? Um, who has the fancier titles and who doesn't? Um, if you're living in, you know, a West 
Western country, chances are that it's going to be predominantly white people that are, you know, the the heads of of different departments, companies, uh, school systems, and so forth. Why is that? Why is it that there are so few people of color um, that are in in large uh, amounts uh, in in these leadership positions? Because of course there are going to be a few people of color here or there that are leading these departments. But but why isn't it something that is across the board? Um, and how might that be related uh, to whiteness? That this there is still this sense of of uh, promoting people who are white as being the smartest, as being the the best leaders. Um, um, or maybe we live in a country in which, uh, because whiteness is so valued, uh, that white people might just, you know, be easier or better uh, able to um, to navigate certain systems. And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily smarter, but they're just more equipped um, in doing so versus uh, people of color, immigrants, women, uh, LGBTQ folks have to make adjustments um, in order to uh, to to. Uh, uh, adhere to some of those standards. Mm. Um, well, thank you for, for offering that up. I'm going to, um, I know we kind of need to wrap up shortly, but I wanted to just touch on something that you'd actually referred to in your response, sure. which was the, the recent shootings in Atlanta in which eight people were tragically mm-hmm. murdered, which comes, as you mentioned, amid a sharp uptick in crimes against Asian Americans. What do you regard as at the root of this? Yeah, I mean, I think at the root of this is whiteness and white supremacy, you know, Um, and I think um, regardless of uh, the crime and who's committing the crime, um, that it's a result of white supremacy. So what I say by that is that I say it's white supremacy and the people will say, well, how, how do you explain the black people who are, um, you know, uh, engaging in these hate crimes? And I still say it's white supremacy because um, there are these notions that Asian people are um, the causes of things like the coronavirus or this bad economic system um, or, you know, the current status of, uh, you know, our economy here in in this country and in other countries. Um, And um, and these are ideas that were directly promoted by people in charge and people in power and are still actually being um, promoted by people in power. Um, And so uh, the the fact that it was even... um, you know, overtly glorified to blame a, a people for the current pandemic, um, you know, that that just goes to show like how overtly um, uh, acceptable it had become to 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 then, you know, take it out on, on Asian people. Um, and so, you know, with this, uh, the, the shootings, you know, this is one specific person um, yeah. who also targeted Asian businesses. Um, but where did he learn that this would be okay to target these Asian businesses? Um, why specifically target Asian women businesses specifically, right? Because there are many, if he wanted to blame his sex addiction, there are many um, other uh, sex related um, businesses that he could have targeted as well, including mm-hmm. strips, uh, strip uh, clubs or, um, or pornography shops or any number of those things. He didn't target those. He's targeted Asian businesses. Um, and so, uh, and Asian businesses uh, led and uh, staffed by women. Um, and so, you know, those were uh, those were his biases that he wanted to target uh, this group that he felt he could have some power over. Um, and so when we look at um, even, you know, pe- other people of color who might be uh, committing these anti-Asian hate crimes, they're just doing what they're told. 
people. They're, they're abiding by these uh, white supremacist notions um, that have been perpetu perpetuated throughout the media um, and in society in general. Um, and so even though they're not white, they're still participating in white supremacy because they're, um, you know, uplifting this notion that these uh, Asian people are to be blamed for uh, for the problems of our country. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that in itself is whiteness. Um, and then even I think that the final piece has been coming out a lot is like, why, why don't people know the history of Asian people in the United States? Like, right. why were people so surprised to learn that Asian people have been scapegoated for centuries um, that with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1800s and the Chinese massacre um, in, in Los Angeles or in uh, the Watsonville riots in 1930 in California. Um, like this is part of our history. Asian people have, have been targeted and scapegoated um, for, for, you know, reasons that don't have anything to do with them, right? Uh, I mean, even fast forward to Japanese internment of World War II yeah. uh, to uh, to post 9-11 mm -hmm. um, and Muslims and South Asian people being targeted, um, that the people are always looking for somebody to scapegoat. And if there's there are people who um, are easy targets, uh, that it becomes easier for them to um, release their attention or their frustration onto them. And, um, and then, you know, that just leads to this terror that now many Asian people are experiencing here um, in this country. Mm. And you, you mentioned um, the impact of, of COVID-19. I mean, here in the UK, um, we have uh, had a disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on uh, black and brown people. Uh, mm -hmm. And we had an, we have currently an estimated 40,000 Filipino staff employed in the yeah. National Health Service. Um, and they were one of the groups who very early on, you know, people were raising questions about the disproportionate number of deaths among Filipino health and care workers. Um, right. I was just wondering whether you had a sense of what the causes were, because I still think despite the fact people generally know that, you know, race isn't real, um, that, that yeah. they just assume that this is somehow connected to that. And I was reading some of the studies, trying to explain it. And some were saying, you know, was it because some Filipino nurses would be less likely to raise concerns over working in high risk environments, or they felt an obligation to follow instructions from their employers as immigrants on a visa. So I was just wondering what your research has maybe highlighted when it comes to the impact of COVID-19 on the Filipino community particularly those working in the healthcare sector. Yeah, I mean, I think um, those those things that you mentioned, you know, are definitely possibilities. I think one of the things that's really important just to even understand is the history of Filipino migrant workers and how many Filipino healthcare workers um, are, or, or why there are so many Filipino um, healthcare workers in not just uh, the UK or the US, but you know, across the entire world, um, mm. is because uh, of the fact that American colonialism um, had led to, you know, the Philippines um, being viewed as a place that you can export people to, to serve um, across uh, the globe for a, ch a cheaper rate, um, for, you know, not having to, uh, uh, you know, pay for, you know, very many um, uh, 
other benefits because they have been so socialized to believe that you know it's better for them to leave their own country um, in order to provide their, for their families. And so mm. um, just that in itself, the, the fact that there is a disproportionate amount of Filipino uh, healthcare workers um, than the Filipino population in total um, is, is a part of colonialism, that it's mm. part of uh, you know this, this notion that people are leaving the Philippines because they view it as their only way out, their only opportunity. And so when they do become nurses in places like the UK or in the US, um, you know, they're working more of these um, and they're and they're nurses. They're they're oftentimes uh, just, you know, working whatever positions they can get. And so historically, Filipinos uh, have worked with patients that people don't want to work with. Um, and, you know, some might say that's part of like our culture and our kapwa, which is this idea of, you know, uh, connectedness with other people wanting to um you know to serve and be collective with other people mm. um and then part of it is also just you know um is is a a, a societal kind of a, a oppression like if they don't have mm. any other work this is who they're kind of forced to work with right um one of the things that has come out in, in um the research is that filipinos in new york city that immigrated to new york city were more likely to work with hiv and aids patients in the 80s and 90s because no one else wanted to work with them mm. um and so while yes there's definitely a care that comes with it it was also again like that this is the work that they could get and so you know they are happy to take it um i think another factor that comes into play is is just health and health factors, health disparities of Filipino people, um, that many Filipino people um, are susceptible to numerable health um, issues that uh, would then be um, part of the, the high risk uh, factors that contributed to, to COVID-19 deaths. So Filipino Americans um, tend to uh, you know, be overweight, or I should say Filipino Americans, I'm not sure about you Filipino British folks, um, mm. but uh, they, they tend to have more higher rates of obesity um, which again, if you then contracted uh, COVID-19, that that could lead to your death. The Filipino Americans oftentimes were smokers, even though they were healthcare workers, that they were mm. smokers. Um, Filipino Americans um, often had, you know, unhealthy diets, which meant they also had cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular issues. Um, and so, you know, taken together, um, all of those factors led to, uh, you know, this high um, proportion of, of death. Um, but again, Again, I think it's important to understand the systemic reasons for why this is that one that there were this that Filipino American or Filipino uh, migrant workers to both the UK and the US uh, were, uh, you know, that there's a, a historical reason for that. Right. Um, and even all these health disparities that I mentioned, like there are uh, colonial reasons for these things, right? Like, like mm. who introduced, um, you know, a lot of these unhealthy foods uh, to the Philippines that pre-colonization, um, the Filipino diet was consisted of, of just fish and vegetables. Um, but with the, the US, they introduced all these other products, which then led to, you know, a lot of unhealthy types of lifestyles, um, or eating at least. Um, and so, mm. um, you know, all things to, to think about. Also with colonialism and obesity, the, the link to that is that in the Philippines, um, being a country in which many people uh, are undernourished and living in poverty, uh, uh, being uh, well-fed and, and having some meat on your bones was actually, uh, and still is, actually viewed as a sign of wealth. Mm. Um, and so a lot of Filipinos, when they migrate to other parts of the country, they don't really care, care or worry about their weight as much because it's a sign 
saying that they actually have money because they're able to eat uh, versus in the Philippines. Uh, many of them are, are very slim or skinny because they just simply don't have enough to eat. So I think mm-hmm. all of these are, are all factors to take into consideration. But, you know, I appreciate you bringing it up because I, I think a lot of um, mainstream uh, media sites still just can't even acknowledge that uh, this uh, pandemic has affected Filipino healthcare workers um, across the country. Um, and so, you know, it's really important that uh, that people continue to have these conversations and to try to understand, you know, why some of these things uh, are still occurring. No, well, th- well, thank you for shedding some light um, as well. Um, we are coming to the, the end of the episode now. Um, what I do is a quick fire round. Um, so sure. quick fire questions with, you know, quick fire-ish answers if you can. Um, your definition of whiteness. Whiteness is um, a, a culture or a, a cultural norm of uh, people centering white people in values, standards, norms um, that all people are expected to abide by. Um, whiteness is uh, oftentimes uh, made synonymous to uh, to colorblindness, the absence of thinking about race and uh, racial issues. Uh, whiteness is uh, is something that is so embedded in every aspect of our lives, uh, even though people don't want to talk about it. What is the root of racism? Ah, the root of racism is white supremacy. Uh, the notion that a certain group of people historically um, have uh, believed that they're better and superior to others. And as a result of that, have uh, enacted in many types of violent acts um, to people across the world. Um, In the United States, uh, the root of racism is slavery uh, and genocide uh, of Native American people, but also the colonization um, of countries uh, across the globe um, and uh, the uh, endorsement of whiteness and Americanness as uh, the norm that everyone should uh, follow. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is this universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? I, in my heart, have to believe that there is an a, a place where I wouldn't call it a post-racial world, but where I would call it a future, uh, a, a, a place where people are able to um, think about uh, race in different ways where it could be integrated and people are aware of the the history of racism, but where most or majority of people um, have an understanding of of how to be kind to each other while still recognizing that race uh, influences the ways that we uh, interact with each other or uh, how we communicate with each other. So for the sake of my children, I have to believe that there's a future um, where people are better at race, um, but I I don't know that we'll ever be post-racial in the place where we are colorblind altogether. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes, whiteness is absolutely a useful tool in in talking or in studying and practicing anti-racism because without naming whiteness, we're not naming uh, the the rules, the standards, norms to which we all are expected to abide by. 
Thank you so much, Professor Nadal. That was uh, brilliant. Thanks. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you today. Um, if people want to learn more um, about your work, uh, find your books, is there any particular uh, site you'd like to direct them to? Sure. You could just follow me on social media at Kevin Adal on Twitter and Instagram, or go to my website, www.kevinadal.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks you again, uh, Professor Nadal. Thank you at home for listening uh, and for tuning into this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud, and join us next time for more conversations about whiteness. <laughs>